Yo, what up? Mobile homies, Instagram live. Who's with me? We got my guy, Aloe Black, coming up. Can y'all hear me? Hey. How you doing, man? I'm, I'm great. Thank you. How you doing? I'm doing really well. Thank you, man. It's great to see you, man. Thank you for doing this. Likewise. And where you at right now? This is um, the, my home studio. Oh, that shit looks plush. Look at that. <laughs> it's not... It's, it's actually nothing, but um, I just I, I tricked out the lights to make it look like it was um, doing something. <laughs> yeah, I'm saying, man, you look like you're in a lava lamp right now. Man. <laughs> look at that purple shit. Look at that shit. Right. <laughs> <laughs> How you doing, man? Oh, man, good. We did a little staycation this week. Um, yeah. We, you know, don't want to get in an airplane and risk life and and limb so we just kind of drove out to the beach area did a few days and then made it back home today in southern california or or elsewhere in california in california okay yeah because you know people have different philosophies on this right like traveling right now like mm -hmm. i just flew and I'm not going to lie, that shit was scary as fuck, bro. Like, I mean, what did you do? Well, how did you prepare? What did you do? So I had, like, my wife damn near had me in a hazmat suit. That's what's up. You feel me? Like, I had, like, airtight goggles. Like, I was about to perform an experiment. You know what I mean? And, like, masks with numbers on it and shit. Basically, she gave me a backpack full of supplies, you know? Yep. And... I was scared as fuck the whole time. I can't lie, man. It was crazy. Anyway, no, just not anyway, man. I, I, I'll tell you, my um, <clears throat> when I first heard any inkling about this uh, COVID nineteen, yeah, I think my first flight once I heard about it, yes, January thirty first. I had to do a gig in Miami, mm. February first or something. So it was a red eye, mm -hmm. and I kid you not, airtight goggles like two weeks prior. Mm. I was on, I was on um, the internet. I bought gloves. I bought a, <laughs> a mask. Right. I bought goggles. I had people looking at me. One dude, when I got off the airplane, he was yeah. like, man, you like Zorro. Ah. And I was, you know what? <laughs> I wasn't even phased because, yeah, maybe I do look yeah. like Zorro. You don't know who's behind this mask, though, because you that's, can't see who I am. That's right. So, But I was not taking any risks. That was January 31st. Um, and since then, I, you know, I had been to, I went to Europe, traveling all through and just like trying to stay as careful as possible. I made it home yeah. on March 14th, the day that the borders closed, everything closed up. Oh, wow. So you, so, yeah. So that's exactly when quarantine started. Yeah, like, I was not trying to take any unnecessary risk. Um, so right. you know, I just figured from what I understood yeah. Just be careful. Cover up all your mucous membranes. Uh, <laughs> Don't let nothing get in. For sure, man. You know, I I think as as we talk about this, you, you know, the, the the pandemic and and you know, as I've been talking to people on Mobile Homies and and the way that different people have been coping, you know, people with families certainly seem to be taking more precautions. You know, like folks like you and me. We know we come home, there's other people at risk. You know, we don't give a fuck how we look on the airplane. You know what I mean? Like, 
I for real look like I had some issues, you know, on the plane. I know that, you know, but hey, fuck it. You know, that's just that's what it's required right now to be safe. But but I'd, I'd like to get into this, man, because your story is really your journey is really interesting, you know, as a musician and an artist and a songwriter and a performer. Aloe Black, by the way, we didn't even do the intro. Clap it up one time. Right on, right on. Yeah. <laughs> So I think I think I first met you in the 90s with with I think it was with Mike Nardone and it was at his radio station. And I think at the time you were doing Eminon at the, yep. at the time. And um, that that was how I became acquainted with you. So so walk me through that, like from from your moment where you entered into hip hop through the whole Eminon period. Yeah. You know? It was, it was, um, it was a trip. Like I didn't expect to be doing music in any significant way. I thought it was just some hobby that I would do with the homies because in hip hop, everybody had their crew and your crew didn't expect to become world famous. You just, you got your crew, you do your thing. You might bubble a little bit locally, but I had met DJ exile who lived, I don't know, maybe five miles away from me. Shot to exile. Yeah. Yep. When I was in high school, mm -hmm. I, I might have been 16, mm -hmm. and that's I had already started writing lyrics, but I didn't have nowhere to put these lyrics. They were just mm -hmm. books full of raps that had no beats to them. Right. I met Exile, was able to start putting my raps to beats, mm -hmm. recording on the most archaic form of recording material, like a Tascam, Porta Studio, or yeah. track. Right. Um, so yeah. you have four tracks of tape hiss that uh, ultimately are going to contribute to the sound of your music. Um, a Gemini push button sampler to loop 12 seconds of whatever. Right. And if you want higher quality, you get like four seconds maybe. Yeah. And then the, the ideas that Exile had in terms of beats and the raps that I had, we would record and put songs together. And Exile was, uh, had, had the foresight to take a 45-minute cassette tape. It's 45 minutes on both sides, so 90 minutes. Mm. And put a mix of 45 minutes of whatever the freshest hip-hop was happening at the time in the 90s. And for sure, Quantum was on there, like mm. in stuff that you guys were making Well, on one side. And on the other side, he put 45 minutes of the music that we were making. Mm. So instead of rewinding back to the front, you could just listen to the other side till you get through it. And luckily, that, that did something for us. We ended up doing a B-Boy Summit 1996 in San Diego. B-Boy Summit. Wow. Right? Okay. Right? Yeah. Yeah. We took 500 cassettes. And yeah. we sold out of all the cassettes at B-Boy Summit. Wow. And, so, and just that's just but hand, hand to hand, like walking yeah. up to people and saying, hey, would you buy this? Listen to this. Mm -hmm. um, and those tapes made it around the world. They made it into hands of some of the local... Uh, radio DJs, uh, UCI, Loyola Marymount, mm. Mike Nardone, of course, at, at the radio station up in at Loyola yeah. Marymount, DJ right. Cheap Shot over at KUCI. And I kid you not, but before I graduated from high school, somebody, there was just a kid out of the IE who really loved hearing the music that we were making, mm -hmm. that they were playing on KUCI. He was like, yo, I got a thousand, I worked all summer. I got a thousand books. I want to press 
Eminem's first 12 inch. Mm. And, and that helped. I started it. We started, you know, got our first 12 inch pressed and then we had a little bit more credibility. You got 12 inch, you got vinyl. What year is that? That we're talking that that 12 inch 97. 97. 97. I was just about to graduate from high school with my first piece of vinyl. And, um, it made it into the hands of like, um, the Baker boys. Mm. Um, Shout to the Baker Boys. Wow. Right? Friday Night Flavors. Yeah. Probably like six. Yes. And and also into the hands of the likes of Mike Nardone and mm-hmm. people all across the world. So then we were able to just, uh, you know, keep floating off of from one thing to the next. Really. That That is when I met you. And I think I think it was around that period when that 12 inch came out. And Mike Nardone, I remember being in the studio with Mike Nardone. And a lot of people don't know this. Because we eventually, Quantum hired Mike Nardone to be A&R. And one of the first people, that the, the first artist that he brought us was Aloe Black and maybe Eminem at that time, you know, but it was definitely Aloe Black. And we had our heads so far up our asses at that time. You know what I mean? Like, uh, we just, yeah, I mean, we just I couldn't. Rightfully so. Rightfully so. You your know, crew, your crew was one of the illest crews at the time if i'm going to think about who else there was like okay you go over to the east coast and you have lp and his crew if you go down to la you have freestyle fellowship and i I don't know much about other places you have you know yeah the east flatbush project which is a whole different speed but still dope just you know what you're right not to cut you off but the point that i was gonna make was that we had the opportunity to sign out. Quantum had the opportunity to sign <laughs> Aloe Black. And look how fucking awesome that would have been. You know what I mean? <laughs> but, you know, it, it, it happened the way that it happened, you know? And then you, you went on to probably one of my favorite labels, which was Stone's Throw at that time. And what was that transition like? Because that was not an Eminem project. No, it wasn't. So, okay, this is the, this is the story behind that. Yeah. When I graduated from high school, I went out to college. I had been doing gigs all throughout L.A. The general manager of Stones at the time was Egon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he had seen me doing gigs around L.A. So he knew about me. I had passed vinyl to Peanut Butter Wolf, so he knew about me. Um, but they knew me as a rapper. And then <clears throat> I ended up meeting through some people in L.A. I want to say Mona Lisa Murray and Asia Shine who were able to connect me to somebody in France, Estoire. Estoire in France put me on my first tour in France, three three or four dates, uh, Lyon, Paris. Crazy. I don't I couldn't even tell you the names of the other places. Two more cities. And then he was like, that's all I got for you in Paris. But I know this girl, Karen, over in Germany, Subotage, she can put you on 20 dates, 25 wow. dates. And it happened to be a loop pack tour. Mm. Madlib decided not to go on that tour because he had been commissioned by Blue Note to do the Shades of Blue project. So he needed mm-hmm. to, to finish doing that. So instead of him being on that tour, there was an extra seat and an extra bed. I jumped on that tour, not getting paid. Mm-hmm. I just went out and spent my own money to try to be visible right. in Europe. Mm-hmm. I met Ono, mm-hmm. Madlib's younger brother, who was on that mm-hmm. tour became friends, came home. Ono gave me a beat CD of 16 beats. I recorded 15 songs. 
And on that 16th beat, I had no more, I had no more raps. Mm-hmm. All my raps were supposed to go to exile. Yeah. But here I am playing hooky, moonlighting. Mm-hmm. And I decided, you know what? I don't even know what to do to this beat. I'm going to just sing. Mm-hmm. At that time, I started um, wow. listening heavy to Ella Fitzgerald mm-hmm. and Nina Simone and Sam Cooke. Lots of soul singer-songwriters mm-hmm. from the soul era. Mm-hmm. And the Sam Cooke song, Change Is Gonna Come, mm-hmm. really, really struck me. And I sang Change Is Gonna Come over one of Ono's hip-hop beats. Right. So sign me off of that. That is crazy. That is crazy. You built your, because at that point, you had built your entire career rapping, right? Every song on that album was rapping, except for the very last song. You did a Sam Cooke cover, and that's what got you signed. Right. And so, to me, it's wild because I wasn't preparing to be a singer. I was just, (laughs) I was just, really, I was just acting, acting foolish. I thought it would be something like, at the end of the CD, at the end of all the, the, the songs, Ono would be like, oh, look at this fool clowning, right? Yeah. I, don't, I didn't expect it to be the song that he wanted to share with Stone Store or the, yeah. Stone Store wanted to sign me for. And it, it ended up working out that way. So, you know, kudos to Ono for yeah. giving, me, giving me that opportunity to ego. Because sure. that really changed everything. So, so you get to Stone's Throw, mm-hmm. right? And w- was was the dialogue at the label at that time, you know what? The rapping's cool, but maybe we should try to pursue your singing a little bit oh, yeah. more. Okay, sure. I was hurt. I was hurt. I was yeah. like, but I'm going to see, though. You know, yeah. I'll spin circles around anybody. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, right. But, um, sure. Yeah. But they, you know, they assigned me to be a, a singer. So I was like, well, I still have my Eminon projects that I want to do. Can we carve that out? So we carved that out of the deal. I okay. still got to do my Eminem stuff with Exile, yeah, without having to be um, collateralized by the cross collateralized by the label. Mm-hmm. Uh, and music business terms, by the way, right? So they yeah. they basically wouldn't Go take ahead. no money from my other right. incomes, right? Um, and I started experimenting. I started mm-hmm. I started heavy, like I was trying everything. I tried I tried an Usher voice. I tried a um, uh, Maxwell voice. I tried. I was just testing out all kinds of voices as a singer. And, and it's because you had yet to form an identity as a singer. No, so. no identity. Right. No okay. kind of identity. So you got si- you got signed off of singing. Right. But did you? Were you like not considering yourself a singer at that time? I still wasn't considering myself a singer. No, I was just like, let me just finesse this. This is paying my rent. Right. Figure this one out. (laughs) I'm gonna figure this one out. I'm gonna make this work. Right. So I got, um, you know, I had a, I had a little keyboard. I started. Exile had really schooled me, taught me how to make, how to make beats. The whole concept of of composition. Yeah. And so I was starting to use some of that in creating my own productions. Okay. And experimenting in the weirdest ways, you know, there was a lot of really dope stuff coming out of L.A. Um, and, and internationally at the time that was very experimental and very forward stuff that didn't really even like you don't you didn't start to hear that in the mainstream mm-hmm. for a decade. at least. What year, what year are we talking about? So I'm here? talking like two. Now we're in 2001 to yeah. 2005. Yeah. And I'm making. Okay. Really, this is the, the time that I'm creating my Shine Through album, my so, first solo album. Okay. On 
on Stone's Throw. Yes. And I'm experimenting heavy on some broken beat. I'm experimenting mm-hmm. heavy on some uh, down tempo house. Were, were those kind of sound, were those kind of sounds from from I mean, because just from hearing you speaking so far, you toured Europe pretty extensively prior to that point. I mean, were, was it because you were exposed to all these different kinds of musics at that time? That, on the that, in Europe, I, I kid you not, they were strictly hip hop. Okay. As, as, as much inspiration as could have come from Europe, they were yeah. strictly hip-hop. what was what was educating me was um, mm. in L.A. J Logic is a DJ, and he mm-hmm. would hire me to MC nights at his clubs or wherever he was uh, DJing. Mm-hmm. His playlist was super eclectic. Mm-hmm. And so I'm absorbing, you know, all different kind of like Mark DeClive and Bemba Segway stuff. I'm I'm absorbing, you know, Fela Kuti and uh, Daz IQ. Mm-hmm. And I'm hearing lots of just different everything. So mm-hmm. I'm putting that into my music, but then at the same time, I'm, you know, a huge fan of Jay Dilla and everything that he worked on right. from religion yeah. out of Detroit. So I'm thinking about that. I grew up listening in, to salsa music because my parents are from Panama, so I wanted mm-hmm. to cover a couple of salsa songs, so I did mm-hmm. that. Loved uh, listening to Cat Stevens and other folk singers, mm-hmm. so did a little bit of that. Mm-hmm. So I just started throwing every, all of my influences into this one project, into this album. Mm. and trying a bunch of different styles and voices. Mm-hmm. And then I got a chance to release, you know, my, my first solo album on Stone's Throw. And then Peanut Butter Wolf took me on tour with him again through Europe, kind of solidified the deal. That was, mm. a big, that was a big moment because, you know, just like with Quantum, people overseas will just buy anything on the label. It doesn't matter who the artist is. They'll just buy the label. Brand, brand, loyal, brand loyalty is huge. Brand loyalty, especially in that era. Right. Yeah. Like anything Stone's Throw put out, oh, it must be good. Anything Quantum puts out, oh, it must be good. You know, and it was, though. That's right. The, I mean, that's the, the, the bottom line, it was the AR and uh, the filter was really tight. Right. Yeah. So, and you got, you got to give Peanut Butter Wolf a lot of credit for that. I mean, still to this day, I mean, he's what, what he's built has been pretty amazing. And his taste is, is very, unique and amazing as well right well i got i got pissed off at his taste because i thought i was <laughs> my second album no, right. no, no no let me let me let me clear it up the second album, i thought yeah. i was making the best music of my life okay but i had befriended eric madrid who mm. eventually became an understudy under manny american one of the greatest you know mixers right engineers of our time manny's a legend yeah <clears throat> so eric was working at westlake recording studios he had this sweetheart deal where in order for him to learn to be a better engineer, mm-hmm. he could bring in friends to record projects. Mm-hmm. So I had access to the place where Michael Jackson recorded off the wall and thriller. Like this is bona fide real studio, Crazy. you know, yeah. and <clears throat> real mixing. Mm-hmm. So my, my music started coming out sounding really crispy, clean, polished, polished. polished. Yes. You know, my song structure, my song writing, my voice was getting stronger. Everything was sounding like Now, are, are we are we talking about good things, like early versions of good things? We're or? talking about Panache. This is the album that this is the album that would have come out if good things didn't come out. So there's an underbutter wolf liked it. There's an unreleased Aloe Black album. Yeah, there's yeah. There's multiple, but yes. <laughs> 
so that so this app so you 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 got in the studio you're exposed you, you you're exposed to all these new things you put together this highly polished album right you turn it in wolf says i don't like that basically that's that's right. ultimately like it, wolf's ear is like it needs to be gritty and dirty you know and at the same time like mm -hmm. you know dilla's releasing music on this label so mm -hmm. But you know, I was feeling myself. You know, right? Yeah. I even, I even, um, the first time I, I I paid for a feature, I paid um, uh, Guapale to okay. to feature on a song. Shout out to Guap, oh, yes. Yep, yeah. shout out. Yeah. And so, yeah, he just wasn't feeling it. He, I, I, like, I want to know all about this shit. Go ahead, please. Go. He was like, uh, yes. you know, he's not he's not feeling it. Why don't you go? <laughs> I'm gonna set up a meeting. I'm gonna set up a meeting with you and these guys from New York. They're out here in L.A. We're going to go have dinner. If you like them, let's see what we can do. Mm. Turned out to be Jeff Silverman and Leon Michaels from uh, Truth and Soul. Okay. These are the guys that uh, Leon Michaels is one of the horn players on Back to Black and that whole New York mm. kind of outfit of soul artists that mm. recorded and played with Lee Fields and Charles Bradley and Sharon Jones. Okay. That was these musicians. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> I was like, cool, I'm with it. Let me go out there and and do this recording, and we'll see what happens. So, so, yeah. so who whose idea was that? Was that that was Egon's idea? Egon, Egon it was Egon's idea. Okay, got he it. heard something. Right. Yes. He heard something. I think what he heard was, of course, he heard uh, the soul in my voice. In the change is going to come, right? And then the name of the album, that first solo album, was Shine Through, which yes. was kind of a folk. It was like a folk song that I was singing on top of that, just freestyling. So he heard that and he was like, okay, okay. you probably can do something that you're not doing right now. And I think if you go work with these guys, they'll be able to tailor it and make it sound like it should sound. And I didn't are, know all that at the time. In my yeah. mind, I was like, whatever, I, you know, I'm going to just hold on to this other music that I know is fire. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to go and do this project in New York and just make some more fire. Right. And then I will, I will have submitted my second album fulfilled my obligation and then we could re-up if, if we want to do more albums so and, and these are the guys ultimately that produced good things is that what we're talking about yeah so truth okay. is Soul produced the good things album yes. when i got to new york i um would go in daytime we'd jam we'd make three or four solid instrumental jams that day mm -hmm. um and then i'd take those jams home and i write to them mm. The next day after that, I would go, I would actually at home, I would at home, the apartment that I was staying in, I would record a little demo and assemble all of the little pieces. So I got an MP3. I would chop it up in maybe Ableton I was using at the time mm. and then place all the pieces where I thought they were because they'd make these jams and the jams might have three or four different themes within them. Mm -hmm. And so I could place those in different places. I'd be like, that's a verse. That's a chorus. That's a pre-chorus or whatever. That's a bridge. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm write a track, write a whole song to it. Next day, play them the song, and they'll be like, great, okay, we'll do this. They didn't really have handles on Pro Tools like I did. Yeah. So I, was they, I would take what they did on tape. They would then bump it into Pro Tools. Yes. Then I would take the Pro Tools and I would assemble it. I would arrange it, arrange the instrumental the way that it was supposed to be arranged based on my lyrical mm. um, arrangement. And then I would record my lyrics. Then we jam on some more things. I'd bring them to the apartment. Right, right, right. And so we ended up doing that for like 
two weeks and we had an album after two weeks good things was created in two weeks yeah it was like one week i got i went spent one week and came back home to my girl who was super heated that i was leaving her alone for (laughs) right yeah then went back to new york finished another week and then came back and by then we were we were we were done okay so so this album is created in two weeks this is the album that produces i need a dollar right Right. so i need a dollar was a song lyrically and melodically vocal the vocal melody Mm. all of that was an idea that could have been on shine through Mm. but it wasn't finished to me it was just a fun little Mm -hmm. kick it with your homies and just come up with verses yeah you know yeah I, i it's crazy i heard that song um for the first time on the HBO show on um, how to make it in America, right? That was that? I think that was the name. That, that was the that was it. Yeah, the show was cool. The show was all right, but that song captured everything that that show was supposed to be about. It was so yeah. perfect. Whoever placed that, that was that was genius, you know. And I didn't know that was you at first. And I was like, this is a fucking awesome song. I don't know who the fuck this is, but this song is fucking dope and I need to know. And then after, you know, watching the show, a couple, I was a big HBO head at the time, you know what I mean? And then I heard the song and I was like, that's fucking aloe. And then the next thing I know, this song is number one in like every European country in the world, right? You're, you're doing gold, you're doing platinum on stone's throw right overseas what was that like when that when that hit that was um meteoric there, there was no way to to tell what was going to happen basically we finished the album mm-hmm. truth and souls managers had a relationship with i want to say gabe hilfer who was uh who still is a music supervisor and still floats me opportunities he needed to replace a song HBO had a song with a lyric that had the word uh, fuck in it. And they didn't want that. And that was also in the title. <laughs> right. Okay. So they needed yeah. to flip it. Yeah. Our album was done. The song was ready. They were like, put it in. I was like, mm. let's do it. It was perfect. The song went overseas. I mean, the show went overseas. Mm. Not legally. It was being illegally downloaded and streamed. Remember Torrance? Yeah. BitTorrent and all that? Yeah. <laughs> LimeWire. Yes. Kazaa. Kazaa. Yes. So all these torrents, people were downloading the show because they got to see a glimpse of, like, the hustle life in New York City. Right. The song song ended up becoming the favorite of, I would credit, in Europe especially, Mm -hmm. Paris, France. His name is Emilion Almont. He's one of my friends. Mm -hmm. He was the radio, radio programmer for Radio Nova. Mm-hmm. Radio Nova was basically like the, the KCRW of France. Mm-hmm. And because they were a tastemaker, he would play my song so much yeah. that other radio stations started to play it. It started to bubble and chart. Stone Store was smart enough to hire a PR agent, this young, young girl who had no idea what to do and what not to do. Mm-hmm. So she did everything. Perfect. And yeah. She she broke rules that she didn't know were even rules, mm-hmm. but got me on the cover of magazines. That's what she you need. Shows. Yes. 
And then Germany was like, what's going on over there? And then England was like, what's going on in Germany? And it, it just caught, it it caught fire. Up. It caught fire. And, and then how does that feel then? I mean, to, to sort of exist in that storm, you know, as you're out there touring now and, you know, is it, are you like, oh shit, I'm a fucking superstar out here with this song, you know, with this song, you know, I, I mean, cause you're going from rapping one album ago to singing on this neck, right? I mean, it's just, it's true, right? And then you're going from, and then you're singing on this next record and you're, you're gold and platinum overseas, you know? Yeah. So, and, and what did it, I, I, there's two parts to this question. What did it feel like to exist in that storm overseas? And then by contrast, how did it feel to live in that period as an, as the artist that you were in America? It was surreal, and I call it uh, schizophrenic touring, mm. because when I'm over in Europe, it's like red carpet, everything. Yes. A-class treatment, mm -hmm. and then I come back home to America, mm -hmm. and people still don't really... I had my little indie following, but yes. it wasn't like over in Europe, where I'm on TV and, and covers of magazines and on the radio all the time. Yeah. Right. Let, let's talk about that phenomenon for a second, because you see that happening with a lot of particularly with progressive American artists, you know, like very sort of musically forward thinking and forward sounding artists. Um, you that, that's a that's a very common story. I know it happened with us. I know it happened with probably a lot of our friends and peers. How do you explain that, in your personal opinion, how do you explain that when an artist has meteoric, a meteoric rise in just interplanetary success overseas, but then back home in the States, it's kind of like, who, who, who are you again? You know what I mean? And I'm not saying that that's what it was necessarily, but just relatively speaking by comparison, I think you know what I'm talking about. How, how do you explain that in your opinion? I think... There's a difference. There's a difference in the appreciation of art overseas in especially in Europe, the appreciation of a craftsman and the craftsman's art. And in the U.S., it's just a commodity. It's like literally here we are now entertain us. That's that's the American mentality. Whereas in Europe, it's like, oh, I'm cultured and I want to experience this this art that is being shared right. and so the metabolism is a lot slower people will mm. accept an artist for a lot longer for sure um, yeah. and they will respect the the arc of mm. the artist's growth and trajectory mm. whereas in the u.s it's almost like you really are only as good as whatever you've done in the last year Mm. Whereas in Europe, you're as good as what you've done in your whole career. That's and a huge. That's that. a huge distinction. That's yeah. a huge distinction. Yeah. You know, the other thing that I, I, one of my theories on that is that also America is gigantic. You know, and and you and I know this because we've toured the states. But some of the countries in Europe are only as big as Maine. You know what I yeah. mean? Some of the countries are only as big as California. So. Success in Europe, sometimes as influential as it is, 
you're not taught. I mean, all of Europe is about as big as all of the United States. You know what I mean? And sometimes the United States feels like a collection of a bunch of different countries. So you can be huge in California, yeah. but not but not necessarily big in Nebraska, you, you know, and I think maybe that offers some explanation. But as you've had this tremendous success in Europe, how did it shape the way that you approached the United States going forward? Did you decide, well, maybe I'm not going to spend as much time in the States? Hell yeah. I was like, I'm I'm already, (laughs) I'm good. I'm like, let me just do what feels good Mm. and go where I'm welcome. Mm. So I was spending months at a time in Europe, two, three months touring, Mm. come home, live relatively anonymous, maybe (laughs) go in and do some tracks with Exile. Yeah. You know, and and still just kind of live a cool life. And, you know, I think my experience being so unique in this way mm-hmm. um, has really dictated how I go about my business as a as an artist in the mainstream nowadays. Like mm-hmm. I could have big songs, but I've I've let the songs be big without my face being part of it in a way so that. Not necessarily that I'm running from fame. I'm just not chasing it in the same way other people chase it. Mm. You know, and lucky, I feel lucky in that way because I can still go to the park with my kids mm-hmm. and hang out and, you know, just be in society. Yeah. And not have to trip on. Like one time we were in Paris, somebody wanted to take a picture. I had a, bur- I had a burger in my hand. I was about to take a bite of a burger and they came up to me like, <laughs> take a picture with me and i was like i'm about to eat a whole burger right now like (laughs) oh my god and so i think yo i'll i'm cool let the party be over there when i'm home i'm i'm cool i'm just i'm i'm chilling you know but but okay and let me let me ask you this then so so Good Things was your second and last album on Stone's Throw, right? Well, yeah, the deal was for two two albums. Two albums. And I figured, okay, okay after the success of Good Things, for sure, mm-hmm. we can re-up. Let's do a new contract and do something else. But yeah. um, there was no request for another album, perhaps, you From know. From Stone's level. Throw? From Stone's, Stone's Throw. Throw. Right. They didn't ask? No, me, no, no. Wait, so, whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on a minute. Your gold and platinum in europe you you still did really well in the states especially by independent label standards oh for sure yeah you still did extremely well yeah and there was no desire at stone's throw to re-sign you i don't know i don't know if there was i don't know if there was no desire it it just never came up and so did a deal (laughs) get put on the table and a deal never got put on the table no that's crazy to me to hear that. So, you know, what happened was because things were bubbling in Europe, yeah. Simon Fuller, the creator of American Idol, Pop Idol, Idol franchise. Yes. He had um, Dougie Bruce, who was his publishing um, mm-hmm. guy, searching for artists to sign for publishing. Mm-hmm. When he found me, he was like, wow, what is this? I need a dollar song. Who is this artist? Mm-hmm. He signed me on as management because I was like, you know what? I don't really want to sign my publishing away, but mm. you know, let's do a management deal. Smart. Because, Very because smart. I, I respect yeah. Simon Fuller and what he's been able mm-hmm. to create. He managed mm-hmm. yes. uh, Annie Lennox. Mm-hmm. He managed, he created the, mm-hmm. 
what is the Spice Girls? Yeah, created the Spice Girls. Yeah, yeah. Matt was managing the Beckhams. Yeah. You know, so I'm like, this is, I'll be part of that. Right. And it was cool. That relationship got me a front door conversation with Interscope. Mm. And so John Eamon, who had been scouting me from, from New York to Vegas to LA, mm -hmm. like, we want to sign you to Interscope. And mm. I, for yeah. sure, let's do it. You know, it's it's interesting though because um, Stone's Throw has this history also of like signing these ultra talented people, right? Who are kind of left of center, but incredibly t left of center for where the the mainstream is at that particular moment. You know, those artists prove themselves. You know, like Aloe Black. I you know I would point to I would probably in in those terms I would put probably Mayor. You know, in that category as well. You know what I mean. Those guys go on to have the success that that they do. They move on to major labels. They get into that system. How did that feel for you? Was that did you feel right at home? Was it foreign? Was it a grind that that was that that didn't jive with you? Did it feel right? I started. I under started to understand it because Stone's Throw had done so many licensing deals with major labels in other countries, Australia. They'd mm -hmm. done, I want to say, Universal or Sony. In yeah. England, it was with uh, with Sony. And in Germany, it was with Universal. So I'd already yeah. had like this pseudo relationship with major labels, okay. seeing how they run and operate, right. put together their promo schedules and their radio tours and all that kind of stuff. Right. So by the time I got to Interscope, I'd already had a little bit of an education, right? Mm -hmm. um, it was a really great situation because the people that brought me in mm -hmm. were important people to top level. This was Jimmy Iovine's right-hand man, Larry Jackson's right-hand man, John Eamon, right? So I was in that that trifecta. Yeah. And I got the major look. I finished my album. I went and worked with DJ Khalil and Harold Lilly. Harold Lilly is an amazing songwriter, so I wrote a bunch of songs with him. Mm -hmm. I wanted DJ Khalil to produce it because I trust DJ Khalil. If there's anybody in the business who's an amazing human being. Khalil's crazy. First. Yes. Yeah. An amazing producer and artist. Second, yes. you know, yes. that's, that is super important. Mm -hmm. um, so I trusted him with my project. Pharrell, Pharrell, Pharrell was on that record. Too. Pharrell also produced uh, a song on the, on the project. It was already done. And I was like, Pharrell, my album is, is done. He was like, just let's do one song. Let's see what happens. That's and he, he made some heat. So I was like, okay, right. well, we'll add it to the album for sure. The thing that I liked also about Khalil was that he was also one of Dr. Dre's trusted producers. That's right. We knew that at the Interscope, they wouldn't be able to say, oh, you should go work with this other producer mm -hmm. to make your album hot. Mm -hmm. Because they knew they, he was already vetted. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. That was a, a great situation for me. We finished the album and we finished the song, The Man, mm -hmm. Larry Jackson. Huge song. Yeah. He's at Jimmy's house. They're talking about Beats by Dre. This is bubbling up years. Like, you okay. know, Beats by Dre, it started, you started to see him everywhere because Jimmy right. made everybody wear him. That's right. That's right. Make him wear him and take a picture with you. That's he, right. He, you know, half eye, half open. He's still going to put that picture on. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. But um, Jimmy got on the phone and was like, yo, Alo, I hear this song, The Man, I want to use it in my commercial. I'm like, yeah. Let's, let's go. Do it. Let's do it. Yeah. So that was a major look. Mm. And 
I wouldn't have got that anywhere else. Like this is the kind of experience that you can only hope for. You can only dream of, yes. but it's happening. Right. It's, it's opportunity is knocking on my door. That's right. You know what I'm saying? I'm not knocking on opportunities door. It's crazy. It's how huge. It, how these things keep happening in that way. You, you know, and, and this is what I mean when I say your journey has been so amazing because I mean, we're talking about getting from A to Z within the course of two or three albums. You know what I mean? And just that, that sort of success and that kind of rise that took all these crazy turns from being a rapper, then accidentally becoming a singer and then, you know, getting in the room with this person and that person. And then it just sort of, it's just this little grain of sand starts to find, you know, it snowballs. And I, I just, I personally, I fucking love stories like that. You know what I mean? Especially when it comes to artists who are, like I said, very left of center as far as where the mainstream is at at that moment, but very progressive in terms of their art. And, and their vision, you know. So then you do two albums with Interscope, ultimately. Right? Am I right about that? There's two albums. Yeah. And then you, you're you also known for having this long-standing collabor- collaboration, collaborative relationship. You know who I'm going to say, man. Yeah, for uh, sure. So I had the opportunity to work with Avicii because of, I'd say it's because of, one, the success of I Need a Dollar. Mm-hmm. And him being familiar with my voice all through Europe mm-hmm. and being from Sweden. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, two, Interscope. Mm-hmm. There was an A&R at Interscope who really loved Avicii. But at that time, Interscope wasn't ready to sign them. The number two at, at Interscope was like, no, nah, I don't, I don't want to sign him. Crazy. But the A&R was like, this, this kid, this kid is, is the business. He literally is the business. Right. Anyway... They put us together on a session and we started creating some stuff and it was cool. It was our second or third session where we got together and created Wake Me Up. Mm. Had no idea what would happen. Just knew it was it was a vibe. It felt good. I'm, I'm like, if I walk out of a studio and I feel right about the song that we created mm. and literally we made a demo vocal and guitar. Mm. There's an, I, I can't write to um, I can't write to synthesize. It just doesn't work. Mm. But guitar and vocal we had a song mm-hmm. then he put synthesizers on it so, that's really interesting okay yeah continue all right and and he and he knocked it out the park and so it was just one of those things where i had no idea what was going to happen that's not my world yes. i can respect that world because i see it i messed mm-hmm. with it years ago but mm-hmm. it's not my world right now yeah you do you and that song uh, again i mean if if you know if i need a dollar was a comic this shit was an asteroid <laughs> right i mean this song goes number one in damn near every country in the, in the western hemisphere right in the western <laughs> hemisphere basically yeah. right and so this puts you now in a completely different stratosphere as far as an artist is concerned right is it are you feeling the having said that though are you still feeling that same sort of effect in the states do you know what i mean you know what here's the thing yeah my name was bigger so his manager at the time didn't want nobody's name who he collaborated with on the project on that whole album so Mm. you know there were a lot of artists who were ended up saying nope i'm not going to 
like big name artists that said, no, I'm not going to end up being on his album because you're not going to do me like that and not put my name on right, right. collaboration, which is reasonable. Yeah. yeah. Which is reasonable. But yeah, go ahead. But for yeah. me, I was like, like I said, I was like, I don't yeah. know what this song's going to do. The song's already done. What are we going to do with it? If we don't put it out. Okay. Right. Just put it out right. in Europe. They were like, Oh, this is aloe black. Yes. So they would put my name on the record on, on, um, on, you know, their, music tv stations on the radio digital radio stations they would always yes. announce my name with the record here in the u.s they wouldn't announce my name with the record because it wasn't it was there so it didn't end up having the same effect in the u.s it was just an avici thing where like millions of people were thinking avici's this amazing singer right but, <laughs> wow okay okay but again yeah. again yeah. i think Damn, what would it what would it have been like okay my career would have been way different way different levels if i had been presented properly on it but at the same time i had just become a father i was i had the money was coming in regardless right, right? whether or not i was getting the visible recognition for it here in the u.s right and the industry credibility was, was huge. huge right like any phone call i wanted to make i could make right. and to me i was like that's cool that's i could walk big. down new york i could i literally would would time it too i was like let me walk down in, in, in uh Times square mm -hmm. and see how long it takes for someone to recognize me mm. and most of the time it would be like every 20 minutes mm. and by the time they recognize me i'm already down the street they're like hey hey <laughs> <laughs> and for me I was like, you know what yeah i can do this yes i can do this because yeah. i flew here first class right and right. i'm about to and i'm only walking right now because i want to Right. I could get a, I could get a, a black car. Yeah. Right. And so I'm like, you know what? I don't need to, I don't need to floss. I don't need to floss. And I don't need to be on everybody's, you know, I don't need everybody to know my face like that. Well, you know, I think that that's, that's another thing that's interesting about you because I, I, I can, me personally, you know, being that this is really the only job I've ever had, you know, I've been around all kinds of artists, you know, and my impression of you over the years is here's a guy, obviously he's a great singer. He's a great performer, but my impression of you just based on the way, the, the, the way that I would see you move is this guy strikes me as a person who is probably equally just as content and comfortable being the songwriter of his own songs as he is being the performer of his own songs, you know, being, you know, that that's just my impression. I might, I might be off, but that's that songwriter side that doesn't necessarily need the fanfare, you know, <laughs> you know, it, you, that's you, exactly, know? you know, people am I know, right about that? We, absolutely. What's my okay. number one goal in this yeah. business? It used mm -hmm. to be, I want to be able to, no, it still is. Mm -hmm. I have two goals. One, I got to get to a point where I'm making enough money that I can contribute as much as Michael Jackson did in his career to mm -hmm. charity and, and philanthropy. That's huge. Some crazy amount, like 350 million. That means I have to be a billionaire right. in order to get to that. I don't know if I'm gonna be able to do that off of music. I got to flip something else. Right. But yeah. if that doesn't happen, the mm -hmm. other goal that I want is songwriters hall of fame, mm. all the other shit, the annual you yeah. know, popularity awards. I'm yes. cool on. That's, that doesn't mean nothing to me. What means something to me is career, a career award where my peers 
are saying, okay, you get to sit on the shelf next to Bill Withers and Joni Mitchell. Right? That's, that's, that's crazy. And I, and I feel that. And, and just as for you, I mean, thinking about you as a songwriter, I have so much respect for you. And I, and I have to, the, the example that I have to bring up firsthand Okay, I'm going to tell this story. It might take us to the very end, but I, I have to tell this story. When I was working on my 10th album a couple years ago, Quite a Life, right? I had this track uh, from the Monophonics, and I said, you know, I was 10 years removed from my wife, Joy, having been a cancer survivor. I was She and I were finally ready to talk about it. You know, it's something that we had sort of kept under wraps for a long time because, frankly, we just didn't feel like it was anybody's business. You know what I mean? I remember I got on the phone with you. I said, you know what? Who have I always wanted to work with that I just haven't yet? And Aloe's on that list, right? So I'm like, fuck it. I'll give him a call. You know, and of course, I've known Maya for a long time also. I've known your wife for a long time also. And I think that's who I, how I got in touch with you. And we got on the phone. And I just, it was, I just explained the situation, you know, I said, look, man, uh, this is what I would like to write the song about. She's a cancer survivor. She she's survived lymphoma. You know, I knew it was going to be a heavy song. I put that song off. It was the last song on my album. Cause just, as you can imagine, it was just difficult to deal with to, to, to kind of get all that, all that emotion and, and, unpack it and write it and everything. And um, you said, okay, let me sit with this for a minute, right? And I'm always nervous with that because when you send off tracks and you're not in the studio with somebody and you're not able to like sort of feed that person ideas or, or have each other bounce ideas off each other, you don't know what you're going to get back, right? And I know you've been in that situation. You don't know what somebody's going to send you back. What you sent me back a week later could not have captured the way I felt any better mm. than if I had written that song with my entire soul and spirit in words that I just could not find. Does that make sense? And in other words, I don't think anybody else could have written that, even though this was the way that I felt. You know, and it was at that moment, okay, it was at that moment that I realized two things. I had one of the best songs of my career. Mm. And number two, this guy's a fucking genius. This guy's awesome. a fucking genius because he was able to take that sliver of a conversation, turn that into an amazing chorus, write it 100% and record it 100% on his own and send it to me and that has never happened to me in 25 years of making records mm. that has never happened to me and that it was such a special moment i don't know that i'll ever have that moment again you know and uh i just wanted to say thank you so much for that to this day i get people everywhere that come up to me and they're like I was on the verge of death. I had, a, I had a family member that was on the verge of death, you know, a friend, whatever. And can't lose my joy 
helped me through those moments in that period. Wow, I just got that, and I think I cried. I think I cried when I got that back, you know what I mean? And as a matter of fact, it was so heavy, I couldn't even write the verses until I got your choruses back. So you wrote that song, and then I wrote it afterwards because wow. it was it was so difficult for me, you know, to kind of, like I said, to emotionally unpack all that and 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 put it down. And it was the last song on that album. And when the album came, I know I'm talking a lot here, but it's just yeah. because it's just because this is so meaningful for me, you know. And when I put that album out, everybody said the same thing that I felt. This is one of the best songs that you've ever done in your career. Number two, that guy's a fucking genius. You're talking about speaking about you. You know what I mean? So wow, your storytelling on that song brought me to tears actually once i finally heard it and it was um i felt very honored to be entrusted with your story and joy's story and i wanted to do what i could to really capture what i what i thought you were feeling even though we had a brief conversation i sensed how difficult it was for you to have that conversation because i had seen you in the years where you guys were going through the illness and I didn't ask anything. I seen joy with a, you know, like a bandana on her head or something. And, you know, I whispered over to Maya, I was like, did, did he tell you anything? Do you know anything? Yo, mm -hmm. you know, I feel like because we had had that experience, I was able to put our friendship inside of mm -hmm. my work. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Well, listen, man, um, again, and it's nowhere near over, you know, we're both still young men, you know what I mean? And I think that I, I, I just can't wait to see what you do next. And I, I love the way that you think. And I love the, I love the stories that you tell in your songwriting, you know, and obviously with your artistry and your singing. And I just want to thank you so much, Aloe Black, for doing Mobile Homies with me here today. I really appreciate it, man. Thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate you. Yeah. All the best in the world, man. Say what's up to the fam. I love you, man. Thank you. All right. Take care. Later. Yo, thank you for listening to Mobile Homies. Make sure you subscribe and hit me with a five-star review on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you catch your podcast. For more content, hit up lyricsborn.com. Love y'all. Uh.